Hello and welcome to Diverse and Inclusive Leaders. This is the show where I speak with the most inspirational and thought-provoking leaders of today and unearth their unique stories of diversity and inclusion to help inspire, educate and motivate others to make the world a better place. Today, I am delighted to be joined by the fabulous Rachel Watkin. She is a multi-award-winning entrepreneur who set up an organization called the Tiny Box Company. She set it up from scratch in a bedroom 14 years ago, and it's now turning over a whopping great 10 million circa. It's since gone on to launch um, a number of other divisions and areas within packaging, as well as a unique marketplace business. The business won the 2020 NatWest Entrepreneur of the Year Award and the 2020 Rural Business Award in 2021. Rachel is absolutely on a mission now to be able to encourage and mentor other female entrepreneurs, hopefully myself included, to be able to follow their dreams, their passions and desires. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Hello. Thank you very much for having me on here. That sounds like a very um, impressive bio. I don't think that's me. (laughs) It absolutely is. And I know that our audience, as well as myself, would love to hear a little bit more about how you came to be where you are today. The story certainly resonates. And I remember setting up a first business in my front room, a little two up, two down. And it's just brilliant to hear those success stories of a female in particular, absolutely going all guns blazing and achieving their goals whilst doing a a great thing at the same time for wider society. So uh, give us a whistle stop tour about the journey. So I've said before, my parents weren't bad people. They were just really bad parents. And, (laughs) you know, you're allowed to be a parent with no qualifications. So my upbringing was incredibly unstable, never knew what was coming. But I was brought up by three parents together and they had no rules, but there was also no, uh, how do you explain it? There was no there was no benchmarks. So they wore what they like, they did what they like. And so there was no rules for us. And I think when I went into society, when I was older, and I was suddenly expected to conform, I didn't understand how to. But I think being an entrepreneur, you have to be able to not conform. Because if you listen to what everybody's saying, I think most of us on an entrepreneurial journey would have been talked out of it. I I don't think I've ever come across an entrepreneur who has been told all the way through, oh, yes, go for it. It's a great idea, you know. So, you know, when I first came up with the idea, um, it was off the back of a jewellery business. And I'd been working out in Sierra Leone. Wouldn't recommend it as a tourist resort. It was a very war-torn company, uh, country, sorry. And the amount of poverty on the streets was just unreal. Because what was happening was the EU and worldwide were pumping millions and millions of dollars into Sierra Leone, but none of it was getting to the people on the ground. So I set up an early fair trade business and then couldn't find any boxes. And it was actually my sister that said, well, you can't just put them in something plastic and and not ethical because that's going against everything that the jewellery is standing for. So I ended up sitting on the floor at the Spring Fair in Birmingham in 2007, just going, 
fine, I'll do it myself. <laughs> yeah, and that was 14 years ago. Wow, that is an incredible story. And hats off to you for going out to work in Sierra Leone. Whilst I've not been there, I did spend uh, quite some months working out in Uganda and, and did a documentary actually over in India around the Indian farmer suicides and some of the third world countries and what you see. Not in, only does it kind of shock and, and horrify, it takes um, a huge amount of change to actually drive something to happen in particular when and again without tarring all countries with the same brush but there is a huge amount of corruption in a lot of these in a lot of these war-torn countries mm-hmm. where getting things done is just completely the polar opposite than it would do would be in the, the western world rather mm-hmm. and it's fascinating to hear that you've actually managed to turn this around because I know that that would have been an absolutely astronomic feat now I know that you're known very much so for for advocating of course for sustainability and what's called a circular economy Economy. I've heard you've been described as an eco-entrepreneur, which I think is incredibly noteworthy, in particular given this modern age that we live in, and in particular given the rise of environmental, social governance, or ESG, as it's been, been tagged now, is known. Talk to us a little bit about that and also around some of the logistics, because you're obviously working closely with the schools and nurseries, people who are boots on the ground in these countries, whilst then also looking at how to grow and advocate over here in, in, in the Western world. Talk to us a little bit about that. And also for those that don't know what the circular economy is, please do talk to us um, and tell us a, bit, a little more. So firstly, don't tell the dragons. <laughs> when I went on Dragon's Den, I was accused of being on a crusade and not having a business model at all. And, and obviously convinced them that, of course, it was a business model. But um, I just want to clarify, at the moment, I'm not doing much with Africa. That's on the back burner. That will come back into, into the future. But um, for us, being in a circular economy is recognising that everything that you do has an impact and a greater impact, almost like a butterfly effect. So you think that just putting your coffee cups outside isn't going to take up much space in the ground. You know, what little change can you do? But actually everything we do affects other people on a much bigger scale. So what can we do that might cost a little bit more? It might not be as uh, financially productive, but what we can what can we do to minimize our impact and look at the larger sustainable picture so that's what we try and operate by so it's it's tiny things so for example we have a cardboard muncher machine where any spare cardboard goes through the cardboard muncher and is used as filler we say to all other local businesses drop off your cardboard and we'll make sure it's reused all of our second boxes go to playground, playgroups, schools for arts and crafts projects. There's a, um, a special needs school up the road from us, Chaley Heritage. And so we donate all of or a lot of arts and crafts stuff for them. So it's, it's just about working with everybody around you, not just in a business sense, but in a community sense. 
So what you're saying really here is actually the impact of your decisions, whilst you may feel that they are small, can have a huge ripple effect or butterfly effect, as you explain it, yeah. on, on, on wider society. And again, you know, I'd absolutely agree with that, is, is the decisions that we are making affect the future so fundamentally that we really do not have time to be, you know, engaging with wider conversation um, or with not doing the right thing that sits within our moral or, or ethical set, as it were. I think that, unfortunately, one of the biggest changes that's happened in society, if you look back at, like, Cadbury factories years ago, Cadbury outside Birmingham had their whole Bourneville village and all of the staff were looked after. They had nice houses. There were schools built for them. The whole wider community was taken on by the factory owners. And then, unfortunately, you know, sort of 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, noughties, capitalism sort of took over on such a big scale that it was all about profit and it was all about shareholders. But we know that that doesn't work. It doesn't work to to ensure the future survival of of the world. And it's interesting that you mentioned capitalism there, because it's almost like the world has completely swung on its hinges. I personally believe that you can have positive capitalism and that you can wish and desire to do incredibly well financially and actually the pushback into the community can still be incredibly incredibly positive i don't think it's a zero-sum game it doesn't need to be that we can only have one or the other and absolutely is where i think people have got things wrong i thought actually you need to choose it is entirely possible and it does not take significant amounts of effort to be be more thoughtful and mindful about decisions and ensure that all of the commercial decisions that are being made are linked to something that would be beneficial to societies and communities to your point absolutely agree you know if you if you were to take two entrepreneurs one entrepreneur who is all me 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 and earns a fortune and has it in their bank accounts and with lots of flash motors. Entrepreneur too makes the same money, helps rebuild villages, helps you know fund huge ocean projects. It, it's what you do with that power and that money that you create, you know, for the better good. And actually, we need entrepreneurs to to be doing that, and we need the capitalism to help bring about change. Absolutely. And it, it builds strength in our society. So if those positive entrepreneurs, those positive business leaders can build a loyal following, which let's face it, they're far more likely to do if they are benefiting the community for the good and there is purpose behind that, they're far less likely to be hit with waves of criticism that say, look, you're all about the money and only about the money it can be positive and we're hearing and um, now yourself included these absolutely brilliant brilliant stories of philanthropic entrepreneurs who drew who do truly care about actually giving back it is literally the only way forward i, I truly believe it is the only way that we are going to build longevity and sustainability for our future generations of leaders and not only that Millennials, zillennials, they make up the largest demographic within the workforce. They care so deeply about this stuff. Statistics say they care less about financials. They care more 
about purpose and ethos and whether organizations hold their same value set. And so it makes complete commercial sense for organizations and leaders and entrepreneurs to be making these decisions, even if it is with a selfish lens, if that makes sense. I had a really interesting uh, experience with a focus group back in September, October. The, the focus group intent wasn't on this topic at all. It was it was asking for honest feedback on a website project. But but we kind of went off piece. So there was about 16 people there right across gender, age, you know, all the way through from like 18 to 60. And, and we got on to eco-responsibility and, and sustainability. And I said, how many of you care about the environment and, and the future? And of course, everybody did. Okay, how many of you will spend more money on something or make choices that are less beneficial to you? Not a single person. So we started digging and, they, and, and the outcome was effectively that they were waiting to be told by the government or leaders. And, and it really hit home to me that, okay, well, we can't really wait for the government because we might be sitting here for a long time. But if business leaders can start sharing that voice more widely, then other people will see that as the acceptable way forward. They, a lot of people are waiting to be shown the, the, the right way to do things. And as entrepreneurs who are nonconformist, it, it's kind of our role, I think. I love the way that you describe us as non-conformist. And I also adore <laughs> the way that diversity, inclusion, belonging, equity, the, the journey, as it were, is really becoming something that is far more palatable to the everyday human being. We all know that the entrepreneurs are diverse in nature and are, are quite outside of the box thinking, uh, stealing some of your, your company name in, in there. But uh, but it's, it's so much more widely recognised now that that different way of thinking is, is brilliant for the boardroom table. Yeah. It's no longer, they are segregated into almost the, the you know, the outsider's way of looking th- of, of, of things. It is, it's something that is embraced and, you know, just, I, I, you know, I adore speaking to, to people like yourself because it's just su- such a brilliant success story that makes younger generations now think, hey, do you know what? I'd love to be an entrepreneur. I'd love to, to run an organization like the Tiny Box Company. But but looping back to your point around the focus group, which I think is a, is, is a fantastic outcome, of course, is there is that moral responsibility and there's that obligation as a business leader or as an entrepreneur to be able to direct people in the right way. Mm-hmm. I, as I'm sure you do, fundamentally believe and adore working with people. And, and with that kind of belief of working with people, you believe and you know that everyone has goodness there in their hearts somewhere. That they want to make good decisions. However, life can be challenging. There's so many decisions to make on a day-to-day basis. So why not distill it and make it easier and bring to the forefront to showcase organizations that are giving those those unique options like you are. Now, moving on into some of the pieces that you touched upon there, and, and again, some of my favorite subjects are gender diversity and also generational diversity. Now, I am still clinging on to being a millennial, an old millennial. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, what's 
what's interesting is, I mean, we've got a, a number of people that work for us all across the, the, the spectrum in terms of Asian generation, 50 plus and even people as young as in, in their early 20s. And it's amazing seeing how the minds work at different levels of experience. Talk to me about the passion for, for gender diversity, some of your observations, in addition to why you're so passionate about the old generation plus 50, which I think is a superb area of focus. And in fact, is, is an area on, on the gender side, which is on the female side, I should say, that's actually growing in the workforce, which is, is great news. So go back to 19, how old was I? 1986, and I was 15. And I went off to the careers office. Bear in mind, I wasn't the brightest of students, but I wasn't, I wasn't stupid either. You know, I just had a very interrupted school. And I'm sitting in the career office and the man in the careers office says to me, well, you can be a secretary if you work hard. And, <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, whoopee, lucky me. <laughs> um, and then he said, but as you're quite sporty, do you know the army are taking women now? So, so, so I left there thinking, hang on a minute, is this the most I can aspire to? Then I did my A-levels. I thought I'd flunked my A-levels and so got a job as a Girl Friday. For anyone that doesn't know what that is, that's a very old-fashioned term for being a general runaround dog's body and just all the jobs that nobody else wants to do. And I, the company that had taken me on had said, we don't want to take anybody that's going to go to university. We don't want to have to retrain. So, you know, you have to be sure this is for you. I was like, yes, of course. <laughs> and then I got my A-level results. But actually, the woman that I was working for was quite inspirational. And she said to me, don't waste them. We, I know that we said we wanted someone to stay here, but you're too bright. Just go to uni. And, and suddenly all these doors opened and I was like, oh, okay. Well, this is a bit different. Maybe I can do something that isn't a Girl Friday or typing. But then I went to work for a large multinational who will remain nameless. <laughs> and the sexism there was rife. It, you know, you, you were pigeonholed as soon as you got there and you were expected to conform in that role. I lasted a year to the day on the management training scheme and, and then managed to get into a company that was completely different. It was a software company and they were really forward thinking. And it was the first organization I worked in where they didn't care what color you were, how old you were, just judged on your merit and how much you could bring to the company. And it was really refreshing and I thrived. And I can't thank the management team enough for showing me another way that you didn't have to be this bureaucratic, old fashioned machine, but you could actually listen to your staff. And if you listened to your staff, they might just have the answers of how you could make things better. It was a real privilege to work there. And I think from seeing like such bad diversity <laughs> and then such good diversity, you sort of learn how you want to run. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And you you articulated it perfectly in the sense that you can really see the stark differentials between the bad and the good influences. 
having those two poignant influences, not only with the company where you realized, hang on a minute, actually meritocracy does exist. The glass is half full, the world is my oyster. But you also have this brilliant woman who I will call a real model because we love the terminology real models, sometimes over role models, because they are truly people we could see and aspire that we may be able to be like. But she gave you this incredibly valuable information and it was completely unselfish as well. Whilst she clearly wanted uh, you to join the organisation, she gave you the advice that perhaps she wished she'd had or advice that perhaps she was given. And that was go to university and go and get those feathers in your cap because you have the opportunity, you have the ambition, you have the intellect to be able to do that. And clearly you can see that that was a pivotal moment in your career, almost like an iceberg moment where you could have gone or a sliding doors moment. If you've ever yeah. watched yeah. the film with Gwyneth Paltrow, I love that one. But you either go to the right or you go to the left and, and, and you went off and, and that set you on your path to progression and, and to ultimate success. So moving on again into kind of almost present world, as it as it were, um, and I'm dying to hear a little bit of a, a snippet as well about the dragon's den and what it was like to be in the den. But tell our audience and, and, and myself a little bit more now about why you think the organization is so successful, because clearly you've got a real dedicated purpose at the heart. You've got customers that are loyal and that affiliate with you and the brand and the belief system which is something I'd love to pull out because I think it's so important in this this world of ESG and a purpose and value for for existing leaders but also for future generations to hear about why it's so great to be giving back. I think that when I set up the company bear in mind that I had in my life, hit rock bottom. I really had, you know, I'd lost, I'd, I'd been very ill. I'd lost all savings. I'd lost my house. I'd lost my partner. So I was sort of trying to rebuild my life. And without doubt, that makes you more compassionate anyway, because you understand a lot more when other people hit problems. But it also made me realize that I needed to practice what I was preaching in that everybody was to have a voice, everybody was to feel part of a team. And we kind of looked at a bit of Google and a bit of innocent drinks, you know, to to sort of see how we could create a culture where everybody could be themselves. So from day one, there was never a dress code. If you wanted to come in with your pyjamas on, you could. If you wanted to sit on your own in a cupboard for the day because you didn't want to talk to anybody else, you could. You know, it was about working with people, about with real people and bringing out the best in them and understanding everybody's personalities. So if you know that somebody doesn't work well under verbal pressure, adapt your technique, allow them to write it down and express, you know, in the in the written language. So it was always about you know, allowing people to be who they wanted to be. And and then you end up with an incredibly loyal workforce. But also it was my step-granddaughter that really kind of hit home for me. We took on a new warehouse. The warehouse had 
been, dare I say it, be so sexist, but the warehouse had been operated by men and the toilets were absolutely disgusting. I can't tell you how bad they were. Uh, so I said to my husband, I cannot ask any of the staff to clean those and I cannot ask an external agency. They're just too bad. Had my granddaughter for the day, who at the time was six. Bear in mind, no, or, or I thought, cultural effect on, on, you know, in work. Anyway, we've got our mops and our buckets and we're walking down the corridor because I said, you know, we're cleaning the bathrooms and the toilets. And she suddenly stopped, downed tools, folded her arms and said, hang on a minute, we're the bosses. Why are we cleaning the toilets? And I would just stood there like, wow. By the age of six, she is already socially conditioned that everybody has their place in a hierarchy. If you're higher up, you don't do these jobs. I have never, ever believed that. If there's somebody that's needed to help out in the, where, in the warehouse to go and pack, then you go and pack. If somebody needs help with customer service calls, then you go and take the customer service calls. Because as a leader, to me, you are a waiter. It is your job to wait on your team in order to facilitate your team to do and be the best that they can be. Wow, what a phenomenal example. And what a fascinating example from a psychological perspective. Mm. Hierarchy exists in every orifice of of life. And again, I'm trying not to agree with everything you're saying here because I always (laughs) like challenging questions both back. But I'm here saying I completely and wholeheartedly agree. And I say this often to my own team, is servant-led leadership. I remember being on a panel once with, I think she was a politician actually, and I thought, ooh, I'm on, I'm on a panel with a politician. Well, I'll tell you what, I needn't have worried. I got on this panel and this politician had said, I won't name who it was. It was a really, really important one with one of the top five accountancy firms. And, and this individual, along with myself, were, were invited to be on it. And she said, when, when we were both asked, give advice to other other women, uh, you know, people that, that want to be inspired, et cetera, et cetera. She said, my advice would be don't serve the tea. And in my mind, I thought, what on earth do you mean? What a ridiculous thing to say, don't serve the tea. And yes, she was saying it in the context of there were men around the table and they thought she was the waiter, et cetera, et cetera. But I think immediately that you think you are above someone because you are not serving the tea, there is a major, major problem. Mm-hmm. And clearly you are a fan of servant-led leadership, which is exactly what you have described there with the example of you and your granddaughter asking why you as bosses would need to do this. It is absolutely the other way around. How can I serve you as a leader? To your point, how can I? Sorry, go ahead. um, Well, I think that one of the fundamental differences, you know, people say to me, you seem to know everything of what's going on in the company. Bear in mind, we've got like 100 staff now. And of course, I don't know everything that's going on in the company. But by me having a personal relationship with a lot of people where I will go and take lids off boxes if the printers are busy, or I will go and pick in the warehouse, you constantly know what is going on and the undercurrents and if people are unhappy what's making them unhappy how can we facilitate change what can we learn from it whereas if you sit in your ivory tower and refuse to serve anyone you lose that vital communication and people people don't want to help you indeed and and you i mean i'm you know again often say gone are the days of the ivory towers because the most valuable currency 
is emotional intelligence and is connection. We look at how fast the digital world is going. One of the only things that can't be emulated by a computer is real, true human interaction and emotional intelligence and having a really strong open line of communication. I'm sure people who are listening in will think, oh, I've had experiences where it's been very much an us and them scenario with, oh, that's management and this is people on the floor and who can end up with these kind of terrible, terribly destructive us versus them cultures, which are just absolutely toxic. But what you said there, that is the route to breaking them down, is us working on a level playing field. Yes, we may do different things, but at the end of the day, it is that sense of culture and a golden thread that underpins all the way through the organization that is I can be myself and I can say what I think and if it's not okay then I'll get involved and it bodes a completely different level of respect the fact that you are willing to get your hands dirty the same as everyone else I honestly believe people will think I'm a fruit loop no doubt but you you know in nature you have an ecosystem and you you know that the bees help to to pollinate you know every every animal insect has its place in in nature and i honestly believe that we as humans have an ecosystem of personality types because if we were all the same personality type for example we'd all want to be doctors or we'd all want to be in the caring profession or we'd all want to be bankers but actually it's a really finely balanced ecosystem of of lots of different personalities that make it work. And in any organization, you need every single cog to function effectively. And as soon as one of those cogs starts failing, because the the, the dynamics of the team are, are wrong in some respects, then the whole company starts failing. So it's making sure that you have that entire ecosystem. And by doing that, you need to include every different form of society that you can have I lost the plot (laughs) you absolutely haven't you absolutely haven't you're making complete and utter sense and again you're talking to someone who who lives breathes and sleeps diversity here without having the diversity of mindset without having the diversity of personality type to your point we have a breakdown we couldn't simply have all yes people around the table we need to have people that think and behave in different ways for this ginormous ecosystem with the cogs and the wheels working in perfect beautiful misshapen harmony and that is absolutely what it is all about now before we run out of time i would love to dive into a couple of lightning round questions and some of them i can't wait to ask you i'm going to give you maybe 30 seconds or thereabouts to answer each of the questions and i'll start off with the most difficult i believe first what is your definition of success Oh, definition of success. Definition of success to me is not financial success. Again, don't tell the dragons that because it's supposed to be a highly investable business. Success is about bringing out the best that you can possibly achieve with everybody else around you. Perfect. And how about diversity and inclusion? I love this question because everyone gives different answers. Diversity means different things to different people. Diversity and inclusion to me means that you include everybody that you possibly can, every single different facet of people's personalities for the greater good. You know, that the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts 
by that jigsaw effect of, of having all these different personality types and, and different backgrounds, different beliefs. How about authentic leadership? I know it's an overused term these days, but true authentic leadership, what is that to you? Honesty. If you are dishonest with your team or if you don't necessarily share the truth, you, you think you may be protecting them if it's bad news or whatever, but actually... If it is bad news, then you can pull together as a team. If you hide stuff from your team, you lose respect. And if you lie to your team, you lose respect. I've seen it so many times. Absolutely nail on the head. And just picking up on one piece that you said there about protecting others, because I've found myself even falling into this trap myself because I adore my team. I love each and every one of them for their unique quirks and everything like that. You want to protect them from everything, from any bad feedback, but actually giving that feedback is a gift. Giving that feedback will make them better, will make you a better leader, will make the ecosystem of the cogs, which I'm now using after your example, a far better place for all involved. Mm. And finally, I wonder if you could go back in time and speak to your younger self, your younger self, who I know had such a challenging time and beat all odds to become the woman and the leader that you are today. What advice would you give to your younger self or someone who is in a similar situation right now? First of all, I'd give my younger self a big cuddle. <laughs> and, and then I would say, it's OK. It's OK. Whatever you want to do, whatever you want to be that's okay because that's who you are. I think as entrepreneurs, we, we are so privileged. We've been put in a position of privilege of, of having that drive, of having that, that unknown force within us that pushes us forward, that actually we have a responsibility to society to use that. So I would tell my younger self, just don't sweat the small stuff. Well, thank you so, so much for being here on the podcast today. It has been an absolute joy and I'm already excited to stay connected with you because I think you've just had some brilliant experience. The story that you tell, it's one that as many people as possible, in particular young girls and aspiring leaders need to hear. I was thinking to myself, oh my goodness, why do I pick out some of the, the key points here? Because there has been so many, but I will do my best <laughs> right now. And I, think, I think one of the things that we haven't touched on, you know, but it is about female support because you don't realise actually how rife sexism still is and how rife the beliefs are that, well, if you're over 50, you're over the hill and you can't add anything. So I, I think that all of us have a responsibility to, to support others around us on that. Absolutely agree. And it pleases me to no end that women over 50 are one of the fastest growing demographics in the workforce. Absolutely brilliant. Things are not the way that they used to be. We must continue to your point to maintain that momentum. Mm -hmm. Whilst we're seeing some light at the end of the tunnel, we absolutely must keep that pressure on because it's only through that pressure and that positive pressure that we are going to truly reach an equal world. But to do that, we need to recognize equity first and that is ultimately being able to give people with different backgrounds the opportunities the encouragement the resources that they need to be able to reach the pinnacle of the mountain and achieve their own dreams i particularly 
uh, like the fact that you were talking about the ecosystem of personality types. I, I, I think, you know, of course, that diversity of thought is absolutely critical to modern business, but also the fact that we spent a significant amount of time really talking about business for good, this sense of community, the sense of influence that builds the strong communities, the sense of loyalty through positive capitalism and the advocacy and the requirements of leaders and entrepreneurs to step up and take this responsibility for positive impact into future generations. Meritocracy certainly can exist. And the real model examples that you gave clearly had a fantastic impact. And what I love is it's almost a closed loop ecosystem that now having been granted positive affirmations and opportunities in your younger years, you now are sending the lift back down as a successful female entrepreneur that wants to do good for society, but has also built a hugely successful business at a significant scale. So thank you again ever so much. For those that are listening, you've been listening to Rachel Watkin of Tiny box company we'll put all of the links into her website and to the organization we will also make sure that we provide show notes and annotations as well uh, if you would like any other ways of listening to the podcast which is available on apple spotify your favorite podcast channels also in our dark global app search dark global network in the app store you'll find it there if you need any uh, requirements to, to, to listen in a different format or to watch with captions, reach out to the team or I. Uh, my name is Leila McKenzie Dallas. I'm the founder and CEO of Dar Global and can't wait to see you again very soon. And thank you again ever so much for joining me, Rachel. You've been superb. Thank you very much. Thank you.